for the week of February 18th, 2016. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Is clean tech once again cool in Silicon Valley? This week, we talk with a leading journalist about how tech firms and venture capitalists are thinking about the sector. Then, Sun Edison's financial troubles continue. We'll discuss the latest on the company. Finally, the recycling industry is in crisis mode. We'll ask what to do about it and if we need to completely rethink the way we reuse stuff. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey. My co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's with 38 North Solutions, usually in Washington, now in a hotel room in San Mateo. What are you doing out in San Mateo? I've been taking a whirlwind tour of a bunch of companies in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and it's just been an amazing week. Totally fun. Factories and such. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen two factories and other many other facilities that you know are like virtual factories. Jigger is with Generate Capital. He comes to us from New York City. How are you, sir? Doing anything interesting? Any tours for you this week? Yeah, well, this morning I just stopped by the CIA Finance Conference here in New York, and I was I was amazed. It was a pretty good good event. Oh, is that like the corporate solar finance event? That was yesterday, and then yeah, then today and tomorrow is like finance one hundred and one for people like. You know, what's an inverted lease? What's a tax equity structure? What's a partnership flip? It should actually be required attendance for all 175,000 employees in the solar industry. This week's guest is in San Francisco. Katie Fehrenbacher is a well-known energy and tech journalist, formerly with GigaOM for many years, and now a senior writer at Fortune, where she writes about, well, all the things related to clean tech we love talking about here. Katie, welcome to the show. How are things out in San Francisco? They're great. Hi, Stephen. So one thing that all writers in this field have in common is that we get a lot of pitches from people with, uh, let's say, unconventional ideas or misconceptions about what we do as an organization. I've gotten pitches for cars with wind turbines strapped to the top, pitches about reusing urine, lots of people asking us to invest in their startups. I'm curious, what's the single strangest pitch or type of pitch you get? Well, there's a variety of pitches that you can tell are scams, um, if you will. Um, and then there's other pitches where they're just not very good ideas. Um, I think probably a pitch that was actually authentic that the uh, entrepreneurs were trying to build was uh, this app called PlugShare. Um, I don't know, you might have remembered this one as well, but the original idea behind it was that they were trying to create a social network around um, a homeowner using, um, allowing a electric car vehicle owner to use their charger or their plug at their house. So you would go on the app and you would see like, you know, Joe lives in um, the East Bay and like I'm going into the East Bay and I have an electric car so maybe I can plug into Joe's house and it has like his phone number and everything like that. Um, I thought that was kind of the most kind of real, authentic pitch that was pretty ridiculous. Um, they ended Taking up the sharing economy to the extreme. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit too far. Um, they ended up pivoting, though, and they, uh, I think they turned the app more into look, um, a network for public charging stations. So it ended up working out. But um, the original deal uh, idea, I thought, was <laughs> pretty ridiculous. Yeah, so speaking of pivoting... A couple years back, uh, a lot of people, including investor Rob Day, who's over here on the East Coast of Black Coral Capital, started using this term next wave clean tech to describe the venture investment climate after the bubble burst a few years ago. And we saw the collapse of a lot of clean tech portfolios. We're now a few years into this next phase, which seem to be you know, guided by software based capital light strategies. I'm just curious about where, what you make of where we are today, given that you've been covering companies out there for so long. Like, what kinds of ideas are getting traction from what you see, and how are those different from what might have gotten traction five years ago, six years ago? Yeah, um, I think well, the approach in general is you know relatively much more mature. Um, <laughs> relatively, um, I think that. 
you know, there was a, these these leading venture capitalists that spent that were so aggressive and spent so much money on this sector that they scared away <laughs> after they lost a bunch of money. You know, they kind of scared away um, these really aggressive um, and um, pushes into the sector where, you know, they would bet a third of the, of the fund or half of the fund. Um, so nowadays, um, firms are, you know, being much more, uh, much more rational, um, much more, um, going into the space, looking at a much more nuanced approach. Um, you were talking a little bit about, um, more lean capital. Um, you know, it seems like the venture capitalists aren't willing to put, you know, these hundred million, tens of millions types of investments into these companies that have big hardware pieces. Um, I mean, some of the things that people are interested in these days, a couple of years ago, um, a lot of it was around um, using IT for either the energy industry, agriculture industry, water industry. So kind of piggybacking on um, information technology. So data, algorithms, um, artificial intelligence, um, some of those areas, like particularly agriculture IT, I think was a little bit overinvested in a couple of years ago. Um, but there's still areas today where people, um, venture capitalists are particularly excited about that crossover between IT and energy or resources. Um, so that's an area that still is drawing excitement, not just from people who would, you know, consider themselves investing in clean tech, but just, you know, regular venture capitalists who, who made all their money in IT anyway. Well, the, you know, the main thing I find is that there's, there still is a bifurcation in the Valley though, of people who really believe in technology, right? That who really believe that the new, new idea will actually make them money. Although I think that, you know, a lot of folks have been disabused of that point of view within our sector. I mean, mm -hmm. because there really is no money from, if you come up with some new whiz bang battery or new whiz bang, whatever, there really is no money for you. I mean, there's no profit, sorry. There may be money from venture capitalists, but there's really no profits. I mean, thinking light sale, I'm thinking, you know, mm -hmm. some of these other types of companies where, I mean, they're not really on track to, you know, unseating lithium ion batteries. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. That's the, the, the that whole debate, you know, that you kind of spearheaded between or should we invest in these new technologies or should we invest in the, you know, the business model? Um, I mean, there's some outliers, you know, like, I mean, as there always are in VC, you know, it's just an odds games, but you know, like Korean, you know, they had like a new technology. I mean, that's nuclear waste cleanup. So it's, you know, a little bit different, but you know, they had a pretty nice exit with Veolia, um, from, from the Lux capital guys. I mean, that was a pretty amazing, um, home run investment. But, but yeah, there's like this paradox, right? You have people like Peter Thiel who wrote that essay a few years back on why venture capitalists aren't thinking big enough about problems like space travel and energy and environment and climate and uh, biotech. And so you do have these very powerful messengers in the field who are trying to make an impact on capital intensive, very bold ideas. But then at the same time, most people are following this very cautious approach and that's certainly playing out in energy. So some of the biggest leaders in this sector are saying we need to do way more in energy but the money isn't following that philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. It's like this cash 22. Like they're telling people, entrepreneurs, you need to think much bigger. You need to take bigger risks and be more aggressive. And then you look back at all these entrepreneurs and venture capitalists who actually did take these kind of big, crazy, you know, potentially stupid risks and lost all this money. So there's this kind of push and pull happening in Silicon Valley that nobody has really provided an answer to. But there are some patterns, though, don't you think? I mean, like, like when you look at Solar City and Tesla, for instance, both of them actually, you know, um, are designed to help consumers connect with with a product or Nest, right? And so, so when you think about a, a consumer play, you can sort of see how you get venture capital like returns. But if your end customer is the electric utility industry, probably not a great venture capital idea. Um, a terrible yeah, venture capital idea. <laughs> I mean, the sales cycles are so ridiculously long. Yeah, I just, uh, it's its not a very good fit. Yeah, so Katie, I had a question because I'm always thinking about the policy angle here. Is because Silicon Valley is where it is and California has policies that allow for 
a much greater risk and potential, you know, first adopters for all these technologies. You have companies, and I, and I really did visit a mix. So there are people who are manufacturing widgets like Tesla and Bloom, but I also visited more integrating t- integration type companies like Advanced Microgrid Solutions and STEM, which are doing really interesting things. And all of these companies are benefiting from the policies that California has put into place. So how does that play into how they're able to attract investment? I mean, I think just you know, the policies um, have created an environment where, you know, startups can feel comfortable building a company and, you know, reaching out for investment and, and the like. But it's also not just policy. It's kind of the many decades of Silicon Valley's roots, you know, starting back with the computing industry and semiconductor industry um, and, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and having Stanford here, you know, the the Bay Area just kind of created this um, region where startups and entrepreneurs can feel comfortable taking risk. I mean, to almost a ridiculous um, standpoint where, you know, failure is celebrated um, and, you know, you have a couple failures behind you. You're kind of like using that as touting it to your friends and family. Um, So it's kind of like a a kind of dichotomy where failure is celebrated on one hand. Um, at the same time, you know, there's, there's, there are these policies, um, in California that, that has helped create that environment. Yeah. So you're talking about the history of Silicon Valley and there are a lot of really experienced and seasoned entrepreneurs in the Valley that are continuing to generate ideas, but they're finding themselves. And I had dinner with one last night who's finding himself facing the hiring of millennials. And he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what I do here because they traditionally, and it may be this way, just generally in the entrepreneurial sector, they they're anti-hierarchy. But he said, but what I have found is that young people are really good at working in teams and levering each each other's skills and being able to pull together to do something. And I'm just wondering how you're seeing kind of what the original Valley folks are, you know, are dealing with as they look to hire younger people. And I noticed in all the companies I visited, there's a real mixture of experience and youth. And I think that's probably to the good, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, I think that for millennials, it's kind of cool to work at startups and and be an entrepreneur yourself, um, more so than maybe any other generation that's come around. I mean, that's because they've looked to their um, to the big internet companies that have come out, or like movies like Social Network. Um, you know, they look to Mark Zuckerberg as someone they want to emulate. So. I think there's a real desire by millennials to work at startups, um, and particularly for clean tech, there's a there's a desire by millennials to be engaged in kind of you know mission focused um, companies. Um, that's why companies like Google, um, you know, or Tesla have su- such success um, bringing in uh, young people and and retaining them. Um, so I think from a millennial perspective, they're pretty interested in startups and particularly, you know, green startups. Um, I think, you know, once they get in the workplace, I've <laughs> heard a lot of, um, you know, kind of corporate complaints on some level about like, work ethic and things like that, which I mean, I think is just part of that whole like generational, um, divide. Um, but I'm not sure in terms of like team building. Um, but I know that, you know, it's pretty hot to work at a startup if you're a millennial. Yeah. Well, that, that brings me into a question that I wanted to ask in 2014 for GigaOM, you wrote this really great piece on the types of world changing attitudes that you're seeing in Silicon Valley. And there have been a lot of criticisms of millennials, um, engineers, and people who are going to work for startups that are doing things that they claim are world-changing but are incremental and kind of meaningless. And they're not tackling the big problems that we have before us in terms of food access and uh, climate change. And again, you know, interplanetary travel if you want to go even bigger. Uh, And you said you do see more millennials and more young people interested in this stuff than the press reports. Do we actually see a real movement of people who care about sustainability issues trying to build businesses? Or is it largely just a lot of people who are going to work for the same old companies incrementally building on these social-related apps? 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that um, I think there's a lot of young people, like I said, who are really interested in working at these um, kind of mission-driven, sustainable companies. Um, so like Tesla, for instance. Um, but I think there's a um, divide between, you know, the companies that are actually growing and making money. So, you know, like, as we know, it's been particularly difficult to grow some of these tech focused clean tech companies. Um, so, you know, I think there's probably less jobs in companies like that than there are, you know, at a Pinterest or, you know, at a, at a web company that is growing rapidly and, um, bringing on lots of, um, employees. Um, um, you know, I, I think when I wrote that article, um, I remember I had just gotten back from the clean tech group forum, um, and a lot of the press in Silicon Valley is really focused on these internet and web startups, um, because they're so, I wouldn't say easy to create, but you know, you need two or three people, you need maybe tens of thousands of dollars and one person needs to know how to code and you build an app and you can, you know, put it up there and start getting customers. So the barrier to entry is way lower in these web um, and app startups versus, you know, a kind of clean tech startup if it's focused on, you know, hardware or science or some hardcore technology. So um, so there's this ecosystem in Silicon Valley of covering all of these web and mobile apps um, where there, <laughs> there isn't that type of ecosystem created around um, kind of looking for these either like science innovations that are happening in labs because they're not startups um, or happening maybe in a corporate environment at, you know, like a GE or something. It's like the press aren't particularly interested in things like that. Um, so I think when I wrote the article, I was kind of reacting to the kind of like tech crunch crowd that kind of covers these web startups ad nauseum and doesn't really pay attention to other innovations that are happening. Yeah. And I think I recall there was like a New York Times article or op-ed on millennials in Silicon Valley. And basically the takeaway was they care mostly about easy opportunities and meaningless shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, I thought it was a total BS article. Um, you know, people care a lot. They're looking for opportunities. Um, there just aren't as many opportunities. You can go get a job at, you know, one of these rapidly growing data analytics companies or like an ad tech company and they're all over the place. And it's, and it's particularly hard to find a like successful growing kind of clean tech in quotes company, like, like a Tesla, you know, there's, there's not that many of them. You've seen that whole ad campaign that GE is doing, right? Where the guy says he's, you know, tells all his friends who are startup kind of people that he's going to go work for GE and they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty clever though. Yeah. And Beth Comstock was trying to make, come work for, work on our railroads, you know, or our, our, you know, our uh, rocket ships. They don't do rocket ships, but you know, they're come work on our huge machines, yeah. locomotives. That's what it was, um, you know, and and it'll be cool, which, you know, I think is, Hopefully they'll have a good response for that. I don't know. They they might have mixed response, I think. So the other thing I was going to bring up with you is this whole East Coast, West Coast divide. So one of your colleagues, Aaron Griffith, um, talked about this in uh, December 30th, uh, 2015. Silicon Valley and Wall Street are, love, are falling out of love with each other. One of the lines in her piece, which was great, was Silicon Valley and Wall Street consider each other dumb money, <laughs> um, which I thought was so awesome. Um, and so I was wondering whether you had a thought about that. But the other thing I was going to say is like, so my challenge with the East Coast, West Coast thing is that I find that venture capitalists actually don't understand anything but venture capital. So when you ask them about working capital, project finance, bank relationships, they're like, oh, yeah, just go work for Sil with Silicon Valley Bank, which is not <laughs> actually a bank. They're sort of like a, you know, sort of like a mez fund. Um, yeah. But like. And so that's the thing that I find weird between Wall between East Coast and West Coast is the East Coast firms all seem to have a good relationship with banks, where the West Coast firms have never heard of a bank. Venture capitalists are funny. They're they think they know it all, and they actually know this one kind of sliver. Um, but the fact that you know there was this massive wealth creation that happened um, with the internet and computing, um, and some of them got a hold of it. Um, I think they think they know more than they do i think in terms of east coast west coast i mean it's interesting too though east coast has its own kind of budding silicon alley um 
somewhat, uh, you know, in New York, Boston in particular. Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily the East Coast, West Coast. I think it's maybe just more VC mentality versus Wall Street, you know, like Aaron was saying. Um, I mean, I think it's outside of clean tech. It's been interesting to see kind of how tech stocks have fared this year and some of the IPOs. Um, I think it'll be interesting to watch, you know, if that situation gets worse. Um, and, you know, no doubt that will have an effect on clean tech in general, I think. Yeah, and we're going to talk about uh, one particularly hard-hit company, Sun Edison, in the second segment after this interview. The last thing I wanted to touch on with you was this shift toward capital-intensive projects, because we've been talking for years now about this capital light software approach. And now all of a sudden we see companies, I'm thinking of like Google and Apple, the big tech companies, getting into autonomous vehicles and getting into the manufacturing of products that are extremely capital intensive, very difficult to get into, hard to source products. You're competing with very large incumbents. Um, These are some of the hardest industries to break into, particularly the automobile industry. So all of a sudden, we're moving out of this capital light phase and into something different. Is this just a fluke or do you think it's part of a bigger trend? Well, I think in particular for, you know, Apple and Google, they're looking at the automotive industry as kind of the next device to get on after mobile phones. Um, You know, so they went from kind of the, well, for Google, they went from the web to getting into Android. And, you know, now I think they see the car as kind of the next platform for that. Um, And I mean, I think it's particularly interesting that that Tesla and Google have been, uh, sorry, Apple and Google have been so... um, I don't know if aggressive would be the word, but they have seemed to have been building um, such interest in both electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Um, I mean, Google has been looking at both electric cars and autonomous cars for years now. And, you know, Apple, it's still a rumor, but it seems pretty clear, you know, like Elon Musk had like confirmed that Apple was actually indeed building a car a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it seems like they really want to get into the automotive industry in general um, and in and through automotive, you know, they're building autonomous vehicles and electric cars. Um, I mean, I think if I think it's part of the reason is that the automotive industry has been kind of so kind of slow moving and just dysfunctional um, for many years. I mean, I think the interfaces of cars are awful. Um, you know, buying cars is an awful process. Um, a lot of people don't even want, you know, millennials don't even want cars anymore. Um, I think that the relationship between people and cars has been, um, lacked innovation, um, for so long that I think Apple and Google think that it's potentially an easy way in. And then they look at Tesla, you know, and Tesla, even though it's still a small company, you know, is disrupting the industry in terms of ideas. Um, and so I think that they see Tesla as, as, a, as a company that inspires them. I mean, this is another East Coast, West Coast thing, right? Like, I mean, I look at Tesla and I'm like, they sold 50,000 cars. I mean, yeah. they're like one step up from a DeLorean. Yeah, so they're like, tiny. And so I'm just trying to figure out, like, what are they really, right? They've, they, they continue to lose crap loads of money. I'm not quite sure that they're actually good at manufacturing cars, right? There's been a lot of data from Consumer Reports and others about the quality of the cars actually not being that great. And so, Early cars, yeah. No, but even later cars, I mean, I think that there's like, they're basically saying that, you know, Tesla's just doing whatever it takes to repair anything that goes wrong. So they have good customer service but they can't actually vouch for the fact that the car is going to last eight years. And so I'm just trying to figure out like whether, well, one, whether you think Tesla is going to be a standalone company um, in the future. Like I really, you know, I've predicted obviously that Apple would buy them just because I think Apple's a better manufacturing company than Tesla is. But mm-hmm. two, whether you really think that they are disrupting the industry um, or whether that disruption really came from the fact that Obama, you know, allowed for a bunch of electric vehicle credits to get created under cafe Mm, yeah that's a great question and a good way to get katie in on the prediction because jigger has said in the past he thinks that apple will buy tesla (laughs) um 
I think it's possible. I mean, Tesla, Elon Musk tried to sell Tesla to Google, you know, um, a couple years ago. I think it's definitely possible that a, either Google or Apple could buy Tesla. Um, I don't know, though. I feel like if Tesla gets bought, it's because they um, uh, are really struggling. Um, I mean, I wrote a piece a couple like a couple weeks ago about um, how their you know stock price was um, so much lower than at its peak, its overhyped peak of like a couple years ago. Um, but I think Tesla's disruption comes from um, its ideas largely. I mean, you're right; it is a tiny company, and it's um, you know not profitable and. Um, it's got these kind of massive risks involved with building the factory and launching the next car. Um, so I think that it's, it's quite possible that a Google or an Apple could buy Tesla. I mean, it's going to need, it's going to be some, a company with a bunch of money. Um, it's, it's not, I don't think it'd be another automaker. But, um, one thing that I know is that trying to be an automotive OEM is so hard. And I mean, you watch what happened to Coda when they try to do it. It's just yeah. so difficult. There's so much involved in it. It's not like just doing a bunch of apps. Um, so, I mean, when I went to the plant, I was totally impressed with the way it it's operated. Uh, I mean, it's an enormous car plant. So I think they're, I don't know, I, I could see them continuing to move up. Nissan is one of the largest companies to, you know, create, try to create a mass market EV and their first electric cars were extremely underwhelming for all their customers. Um, so I think that Tesla is trying to act more, much more like a technology company like an Apple or Google when it comes to working with their customers. Okay. So what do we do take away from this? You wrote a while back that clean tech is much more sober in Silicon Valley. Are the cocktails starting to flow again? <laughs> um somewhat i think n n the people who are really actually drinking the cocktails are um the uh investment market in china getting into electric cars um i don't know if you've been following with faraday future and next ev um absolutely they're really breaking out the cocktails over there so yeah, but it's a very strange cocktail i can't quite figure out their strategy <laughs> um, we've been kind of yeah. critical of them on this show or at least i have yeah, I think in in Silicon Valley though, I think uh, nobody is drinking the clean tech Kool Aid anymore. Definitely not. Katie Fahrenbacher is a senior writer for Fortune, and she joined us from San Francisco. A fun conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Stephen. All right, so let's admit it: financial markets are super baffling. Well, for many of us, like like me, sometimes it can be hard to distinguish between real problems and market sentiment, and then how much that sentiment starts creating real problems for a company. So take Sun Edison. If you listen to this show regularly and follow the news, you know how badly the company is doing right now. There are some very clear reasons for this. Uh, too much debt, an overly aggressive strategy, worries about its Vivint acquisition. I think some people were speculating that uh, rising interest rates would be a problem, and so on and so on. The company has lost more than 90% of its value since the middle of last year. Things do appear to be getting worse. This month, Hawaii's utility actually canceled three contracts for large solar farms on the islands, saying Sun Edison has, had missed its window to obtain financing. The optics on this look really bad, and some speculate that this will make it harder for the company to finance future contracts. UBS equity analysts cut Sun Edison's price target to $0.75 cents this week and said to expect significantly revised development targets coming up. So let's just remember that the company was trading over $30 last July. And this morning, Sun Edison said it is shuttering, selling, and restructuring its polysilicon plants in an effort to cut costs. So what does this all add up to? Um, Jigger, where are we at here? I'm honestly having trouble figuring out if we're like at the bottom or if this is a company truly on the verge of collapse. So, um, I mean, I've been fairly measured about what I say, um, not because I have insider information, but just because, you know, as the founder of Sun Edison, you don't want to be bad mouthing the next sort of management team. But I do think that where we are now is on January 7th, Sun Edison secured a scene, a second lien loan of $725 million to help liquidity. So Sun Edison was out of the woods from a bankruptcy point of view at that point. I, you know, I think the challenge with Sun Edison 
has been that they really just aren't managed well. So now that Carlos is out of the game and, you know, like Carlos, love him or hate him, he actually understood Solar. You know, uh, like I don't understand the fascination with like Brian Werbels that the street has. I think Brian has been a horrible CFO at Sun Edison. Sun Edison at the core is a cash management company, right? And they haven't done a great job of managing their cash. Ahmad, you know, is a tech guy from the semiconductor industry and still doesn't understand solar. And so you're in this situation where, where the company has a lot of really great core assets, but it is just really weak on execution. Um, on top of that, I think what I've said for a long time, which I think they finally dealt with, um, is that they they were doing way too many things. I mean, I think Kathy Zoy is still at the company doing, you know, like the u- utility for the poor of the future or something. Yeah, they're and- doing a lot of stuff in developing countries. And I was talking to a couple other people over there who said that those those efforts were definitely still continuing. Which is ridiculous, right? Yeah. They should be getting rid of everything that is not core. I mean, I think I said this last time. Everything, everyone who works in energy storage at Sun Edison should no longer have a job, right? I mean, wow, that that's is really not bold. core to their business. Well, what would okay, you do? Okay, so strip it down. Well, I mean, look, I don't know what I would do because I'm certainly not a CEO of a company nor qualified to make those decisions. What would you strip it down to? A couple of things, right? One is that Sun Edison has to recognize that it has a cash flow problem, right? So there's two things that generate cash, right? One is uh, their commercial CNI business, and the second one is their utility scale business. Now, both of them cost them cash as well because they have to construction finance the deals. They sell them at COD to tax equity providers, et cetera. If they don't have the cash to do that, then what you do is you partner with people who will pay a lower price but will buy the projects pre-NTP and do all the construction financing for Sun Edison and pay them a profit margin at the end of the construction cycle, right? But what happened in Hawaii fundamentally is, yes, they had people leave, but that they, instead of selling off the project wholesale, which they could have done any time in the last three years, they instead insisted on, on wanting to build the project. And, you know, the guys at HECO misread the tea leaves and thought that Sun Edison was doing poorly because of their stock price and thought that because of that, they didn't get their financing in place, right? But the, at some point, you have to show the humility of the situation that they're in. But in Hawaii, if you can look at the KITV from Honolulu reports, I mean, they were building the projects. Helix Construction has been out in the press a lot about this. A hundred people are going to be out of jobs. They have a buyer, so they have financing in place. It just seemed like a really poor decision. And it's really not going to help Hawaii meet their 100% renewable goal either. Right. But but the thing is, is that it doesn't matter who's right, right? This is the same thing that we've had a conversation about with politics, right? When it comes to your stock price and this kind of stuff, Sun Edison is losing deals left and right right now because people are looking at their stock price and saying, I don't know whether they're going to be around to honor this contract, right? And so they have to actually look themselves in the mirror and say, what do I do to give people confidence? Well, what they could have done is partnered with SunPower or First Solar on those deals who have a more functioning yield code. They could have partnered with SPower, which I'm on the board of. There's lots of things that they could have done to solve that problem. Right now, you know, they're trying to sell off all these assets to gain cash. And what they're doing is they're saying, we would like for you to build the projects, but actually let us be the GC, the general contractor. You bring your EPC in underneath it to actually build the projects. That way we get to tell the street that the entire revenue stack is coming through Sun Edison. Why would you do all of that weird shenanigan stuff? Like, why wouldn't you just say, here, Buy the project from me. Pay me ten cents a watt or twenty cents a watt up front. Pay me the rest when the projects are completed, and then we've raised cash, right? I just think that they've just been so cute. I mean, I'll give you one other example of something just absolutely ridiculous, right? When their stock price was thirty bucks a share, many of us were saying to them, raise equity, right? If when your stock price is thirty bucks a share, raise equity, um, and you know, pay down your debts, you know, and. They didn't do that. Instead, they actually used their high stock price to raise more debt. And now all that debt is coming home to roost because those debt folks have many more rights than equity would have had, right? And they would have been far better off had they actually just raised more equity and diluted the shareholders at 30 bucks a share than what they did in January when they diluted the shareholders at, you know, three bucks a share. 
Okay, one last piece of this. This was part of the restructuring plan announced this morning. They said that they were going to sell a Malaysian silicon wafer production facility. They're closing a polysilicon facility in Texas, and they're kind of refocusing, restructuring this Portland, Oregon facility to do uh, more R&D uh, on silicon production. This seems like a pretty good plan to me, given how low uh, silicon prices are. It's not a good time to be a polysilicon producer. So do, how do you read that restructuring? Um, so it's neither here nor there. It's not a big deal. Basically, I think, you know, that's a strategic question for Ahmad. Basically, what's going on is the Texas plant had a contract for Silane. I think it was Silane that is just way out of market. It was signed back in like 2008 when silicon prices were high and it's a 10 year contract. And so they have to wait till like 2018 for the pricing to work there. Remember, MEMC has by far the best silicon manufacturing technology in the world. Everyone from the Chinese to the Koreans desperately want their hands on this technology. And the challenge that they've had is that they haven't been able to figure out how to set up complicated licensing agreements to get this done, which is another challenge with the company, right? Because Ahmad sort of understands technology, doesn't quite understand solar, but he hasn't really been focused on cutting these silicon deals. So they... Um, haven't really been able to monetize all the silicon technology that they have. And so they're in this weird place. And yeah, I mean, at this point, it's probably better to just get rid of it. But they're going to lose money getting rid of it. And there was real value in their silicon business. They just couldn't figure out how to unlock it, which is sad. Well, I think that covers the latest Sun Edison news pretty well. We're going to have plenty of updates for sure. Certainly that uh, price target downgrade to 75 cents a share was a big piece of news this week. So we'll keep you updated. On to the third topic. Uh, when I was in the fifth grade, my class devoted an entire year to developing a recycling program for my elementary school, and we educated other kids about the importance of recycling. We even wrote a song about it. And believe me, if I could remember the song, I would sing it for you, even though I have a horrible voice. We all sing the praises of recycling. It makes us feel good, Reusing stuff instead of just throwing it away is obviously the right choice until the economics don't make sense. Today, with the price of oil and other commodities so low, it just isn't profitable for many companies and thus municipalities to recycle. It's just cheaper to make new stuff. Adding to that problem, New York Times columnist John Tierney wrote a piece last October, which, Jigger, you brought up, I think, at the end of one of our podcasts, making the case that we should just be landfilling most of our waste, not recycling it. That made a lot of people upset, of course, but there are some interesting and hard economic truths behind his argument. So how should we think about recycling today? Catherine, are you now throwing everything out in your house? <laughs> this is all just a habit. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, in my county, we have two bins and they're the same size, the trash and the recycling. They tell you what you can put in each and we just do it. I mean, it's not even something you really think about. Um, so it's just, a, you know, it just has become a habit over time, which is good. I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that, you know, commodity markets fluctuate. And so this happens occasionally. Every three or four years, you get a dip in the price and it becomes less lucrative. But I think we need to look at it um, over time. And we also need to look at what all the different feedstocks are and who's doing what with the products. So a lot of commercial clients are not backing off because recycling their own products lowers their waste charges. So Walmart is doing this with their supply chain. Um, when I was at Tesla, they are zero waste. I mean, everything in that place is recyclable or compostable, every single fork, knife, spoon, anything in that place. Because all of this is, is reducing cost to the company as a whole. And I think that that may be changing the way we view recycling. So it's not just these big recycling companies, but they're companies themselves that are internally doing it. Um, there are also technologies that have changed. So packing has changed. Recycle content has changed. Shapes and sizes of bottles have changed. And part of this has been spurred by the recycling business. But it also means that there's certain things that become less valuable. And that's just kind of the way technology moves, I think. So I'm an Eagle Scout. And uh, for my Eagle Scout project... Hey, that I, was supposed to be for something we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, put in um, 
part of the recycling program in my hometown back in, uh, when was this? 1986. Um, you know, the thing, it, it's so funny. So I've been to a lot of these retreats recently. And, uh, one of the guys I got to know pretty well is a guy named Brian Martell, um, who used to work for the American chemistry council, which is where Jack Gerard used to be president and CEO. And, you know, what, the way he tells the story, which is pretty interesting is that, um, is it, the the recycling industry was actually cooked up by the chemistry council and the plastics council because ultimately they knew that if we moved to producer responsibility, which is what they largely have in Europe, where the manufacturers of products actually have to be responsible for recycling 100% of their products at end of life, that, you know, that there would actually be a big disruption to the plastics industry. And so they all got behind recycling and spent over $100 million or so to promote it. Um, and we've got what we have, which is a completely dysfunctional, useless system that relies on individual people to do the right thing, which we all know doesn't work. And, you know, and because of that, we have recycling rates of non-metals in something like 7%, 6%, 8%, depending on the, the, the feedstock stream. It's really awful. And what we really need to do is to go to extended producer responsibility. But, you know, that's the whole, you know, Democrat-Republican divide in this country. Yeah, very touchy. Certainly huge in Germany. Um, big in Sweden, I think, and, and a lot of Western European countries. Also, another controversial um, another controversial solution is incineration. Incineration technology has gotten a lot better and I think a lot of people would argue that maybe we should just be burning more of our trash. When you think about the methane created at landfills, uh, you're putting fewer greenhouse gases in the air through an efficient incineration plant rather than releasing that methane as the uh, the waste decomposes in the landfill. So, well, that's, so that's also a touchy subject that could be a potential solution. Incineration doesn't really work, though. So with incineration, you can do it, but they don't like organics, right? So you still have to take the organics out of the waste stream, which is what causes the methane. And what the incineration guys want to do is all the plastics and all the the paper and that kind of stuff. Um, but they don't want to burn grass or burn, you know, food waste. Um, but no, it's a huge problem in this country. And the fact that we don't talk about it enough, like, it bothers me. There's a lot of work that's been done on the West Coast. And so the governor of California has been talking to British Columbia as well as the governors of Oregon and Washington state. And they're trying to create a corridor of extended producer responsibility. And in fact, Coca-Cola has been pushing really hard to get this done because they actually see extended producer responsibility as the right move for their business. Yeah. Um, Cause as Catherine said, they're doing it. I think like yeah. Andrew Winston, who we've had on this show before has documented many companies that are doing just that for, to improve their bottom line. Yeah, and it decouples but, it from the commodities market so that it doesn't become part of the wax and wane of the commodities market. Right. But I just think that like, but I do think that we just have to bear down and recognize that if we actually want recycling to work, if we want to do this cradle to cradle stuff that, you know, that we've been hearing for a long time, et cetera, um, you know, I just, it's not going to happen without policy. And I think it, it goes to show again that you know the free market doesn't solve these problems on their own. They solve these problems through a framework that's provided by the government. In Germany, this extended producer responsibility has such a low impact on the overall cost because they've innovated around figuring out exactly how to get the recycling done because they have a 100% mandate that the cost of recycling, I think, is something like less than one-tenth of 1% of the original product cost. Yeah, I talked to somebody who was in another form of recycling, which I think is also something that we don't have any policy for and that is really important um, for for wealth creation, which is critical materials, um, which are critical and valuable raw materials that are in e-waste and you know all kinds of other things, which are gold and copper that really can add economic value to recycling. And this person just said, you know, the focus only on the technical recovery of these critical materials metals can lead to collateral damage for other materials so that you really have to look at the full, um, everything that makes overall technological and economic sense when you're looking at what do you want to focus on? What are the, what are the decisions both from, from a policy standpoint, but also on, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to focus on when you do the recycling? 
One of the interesting things that came up in John Tierney's op-ed piece from October that I don't think was really discussed all that much, and, and maybe it's discussed more in the industry and I just haven't seen it, but he proposed just a flat tax on everything that goes into the landfill to make up for the environmental harm. And so you're sort of stripping the complicated economics out of the equation when commodities prices fluctuate. And that seemed to be kind of compelling. And, uh, you know, I haven't really digested it nor talked to any economists about it. And I'm wondering if either of you think that's an interesting idea. It's no, it's diabolical. It's the why is it diabolical? Idea, well, because it it appeals so greatly. You're like, oh, it's just like put a price on carbon, right? And then it'll solve the world's problems, right? But in fact, it doesn't. So when you look at when you look at the way in which innovation has occurred in Germany through the mandate, um, you've actually gotten the cost of recycling all the way down to a level where a, like a tax would actually you know, be the net impact of that. But if you try to get there through a market-based mechanism in the U.S., what you'll find is like 75 to 80 percent of all of our waste streams would not be, um, would not be recycled, right? Just that the, that the $10 uh, you know, tax or whatever tax you'd put on there would lead to more landfilling because people would just be like, okay, now we can landfill. Right now, the reason why we're in this really weird place where you know the op-ed showed up is that for many states around the country, it's impossible to permit a new landfill, right? And so they're just simply running out of space for landfill materials. And so that's why this conversation has actually bubbled to the top. And so from an environmentalist point of view, it's actually good to leave it that way and to force this colossal policy conversation around, you know, like, how do we solve it? It's extended producer responsibility or it's building another landfill. What would you like? Well, we can't build another landfill because it's politically difficult. Let's do extended producer responsibility. Like, that's the politics of where we're headed in the U.S. right now. So, you know, solving it through a diabolical tax that then lets landfills become profitable again is not something we want to do. Well, I'm trying to figure this all out, but I am still recycling. So let's tell our something so let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Time to cap off the show. Catherine, what's your story this week? Sure. So in answer, in response to the clean power plan stay, where twenty seven odd states said we don't want to implement the clean power plan, seventeen governors assigned an accord for a new energy future where they are promising to move ahead no matter what. And they're saying, we're going to plan for a transition. We're going to move to clean energy sources. We're going to modernize our energy infrastructure and do clean transportation. And we're going to do transformational policy changes so we can have a stronger national energy future. And these 17 governors, um, you know, it's a mix of Democrats and Republicans. So you have Iowa, um, Michigan, Nevada, and Massachusetts are all, are all led by Republican governors. And then, of course, you have, you know, California, Delaware, New York, Pennsylvania, Vermont, Washington, Virginia, Rhode Island, Oregon, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Hawaii, and Connecticut that are all led by Democrats. But I think it was pretty interesting that they came out immediately this week with a response to say, we're going to continue to move ahead. That's great. I think that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, you can find it on, if anybody's interested, governorsnewenergyfuture.org. Jigger, what's your story this week? So we've had Mike Grunwald on the show before, and Mike you know, had a, um, a tweet fest um, yesterday uh, because it was the seventh anniversary of the stimulus uh, bill, which he has written a book about. And, um, you know, he was on the plane with Joe Biden going from project to project. And the one program that he highlights, um, which I think is important for folks to to pay attention to, is these TIGER discretionary grants, which is the Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recovery Program. And that program is one of the programs which Congress um, even after the stimulus bill, has authorized more money every year into this program. And what it's done is created this competitive race to the top type structure across the country for multimodal transportation projects. So for a long time, people said, well, rail is just owned by the private sector. They can do whatever they want to do. And what we realized is there was a lot of bottlenecks that were in the public interest to help fund um, to solve. And Tiger has done an extraordinary job of that. And because of that, we've got far more of our goods and services traveling by rail today than we did back in 2008. And it's a huge success out of the stimulus program. Hmm. I did not know that. That's Mine's cool. short. 
Uh, tomorrow, I am officially moving to the Green Tech Media Boston office, so I will no longer be coming to you from Washington, D.C. So I'm packing up, and we got our one of our headquarters up there in Boston, and I'm looking forward to uh, being with the team up there. And then on Tuesday, March 15th, I'm actually going to be involved in a panel discussion through the New England Clean Energy Council called Working with the Press in an Evolving Media Landscape. So if you want to learn more about uh, how we choose topics on this show and about how we work as journalists, come to that panel. Looking forward to seeing many of you in Boston. And that is it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. You can reach out to us anytime at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We uh, try to get back to everyone. We all have a lot of emails, so sometimes it takes a little bit, but we appreciate your responses, your questions, your comments. Uh, You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Overcast, pretty much any podcast app of your choice, and we've got an entire backlog of episodes. Um, So much listening to do there. Uh, Catherine, have a great rest of your trip. Any other interesting facilities that you're visiting? The next facility is San Francisco International Airport. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm running to it right now. Oh, you're leaving. Oh, okay. So, like, <laughs> like you're gonna get, you gotta catch a flight. Well, let you go. Jigger, have a good week and weekend. Thanks. Have a smooth move up to Boston. I will. Thank you very much. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>